All right. Well, let me first tell us what's going on with the Among Us conference coming up. So remember our campaign rhythm. At the end of the campaign, we have one week of pretty, like, a lot of content during the week. And then the next week, we'll do um, courses. So uh, here's the schedule for this upcoming conference week, two weeks, I guess. So February 7th, that Sunday, uh, Jonathan Reynolds is coming. He is going to be preaching on Sunday morning on the multi-ethnic church. And then February 9th, that Tuesday night, um, Beth and Buck Webb are going to be, we're going to be doing a Zoom call with them in the evening talking about parenting. So Beth and Buck Webb, if you, um, they attended church here maybe three years ago. Um, they are mentors for Adam and Jamie Cook. Wonderful people. Um, they've been doing kids ministry for years. Um, and we really respect their opinions and how they uh, approach parenting. So it's going to be a good conversation on that. And then that Wednesday, we have Worship Well here uh, at church. And we're going to be in person. And remember, the idea there is to, to bring our spiritual, our, our mental, our emotional, our physical natures all to worship and to worship God with all of who we are. And we're going to be talking about peacemaking at that on Wednesday night. And then Thursday, uh, I'm going to be doing another online interview with Dr. Brett Bounds, and we're talking about marriage. And then February 14th, that one, I'm still waiting to book somebody. Got a couple of invites out there, and we'll figure something out. And then the 15th through the 18th, we're going to do four nights in a row here uh, in person. We're doing Emotionally Healthy Relationships by Pete and Jerry Schizero. It's a really good study. So put those things on your calendar. There will be a lot of communication going out um, over the next couple of weeks on social media, email, all that stuff for you guys to make sure you book your calendars and get everything going. All right. Huh. I am really... This guy is not wanting to work all that well. Here, Ian... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for your, is that one working? Let's just use that one then. Sorry about that, guys. Soft launch. We'll get this church thing figured out. Well, now, it's not now it's not finding yours? <laughs> Great. One of these has to work. Okay, well, why don't you work on it back there? We'll figure it out and just, uh, when one works, bring it to me. Otherwise... I'll just read from here, and we'll go from there. Okay, would you guys pray with me, and then we'll jump into the text. Lord, God, we praise your name, we glorify you. Lord, you are holy, you are good, you are worthy of our praise. Lord, it's so great to gather and to worship you together in community and to praise your name. Lord, may our, may our unified voice of worship be honoring to your ears. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Yes. Thank you, sir. Let's give it up for Ian. What's, what's service, man? This guy. Uh, we, we've all had a lot on our plates in 2020, but Ian had a lot on his plate for multimedia stuff in 2020 and the church. Okay. But now it's not working again. We gave you a round of applause too early, dude. Bummer. Let's take our round of applause back. Okay, whatever. We'll figure it out. Um, 
Yeah, so, Ian, why don't you just follow along with me on the, uh, on the slides, and I'll just read and go from there and try to remember my notes. So, we are in, uh, remember, our series is called Among Us, so our, our campaign is called Among Us. The first, uh, for the first four weeks, we talked about incarnational living and how we should model our life, pattern our ministry, how we do church, all of that stuff, after Jesus and his incarnation. Um, and then... Starting this year, we started talking through Romans, uh, Romans 12 through 16. We're going to make it all the way through the book, which I didn't think we were going to do, but we're going to get all the way through it. We are currently in Romans chapter 15, and remember, this is all based in Romans chapter 12, where Paul tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God in view of God's mercy. Okay, so when we think about God's mercy, which Paul has spent 11 chapters outlining and describing the mercy of God in salvation, when we think about that and we grasp that to even the smallest degree, the natural response, the reasonable response to that is to just give ourselves to God in worship, all of us to him, okay? So it's all based on that. And now in Romans 14 and 15, the first half of 15 at least, this is Paul's primary application. So this is why he spent all the time in the first 11 chapters of the book with this deep theological dive into salvation, God incorporating the Jews and Gentiles into the people of God, how all of that happened, all of that stuff. This is his main application he's coming to in chapter 14 and 15. And in 14 and 15, we saw that he's, he's kind of created two different categories of believers in the church the house churches, Some, most scholars think there's about five house churches in Rome at this time, that he's kind of categorized them into two different groups, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. Okay, so in chapter 15, 1, we're going to see he references the strong in faith for the first time. The weak in faith are most likely those who have had a hard time uh, moving away from the Jewish dietary laws of the Old Testament. So they still felt as if they needed to eat kosher. They, they still felt as if they needed to practice the, the Sabbath every week and, and, and follow that pretty strictly. Uh, circumcision might be involved here too because he's going to mention this in verse 15, uh, which was uh, all, all three of those were signs that an individual was uh, following the Mosaic law and the Jewish religion, Okay. So those were the key distinctives in the law. When they went into a different community, if somebody practiced Sabbath and the dietary laws, then they were different. That says we are different than you. We live our life different than the Gentiles. It was the main reason for those laws, to separate them uh, and to make them distinct. Now, the problem is they have this new community forming where you've got people who have grown up believing that practicing that their whole life, saying, I, I'm different. I'm following the law of Moses, and, and these practices indicate that. Living in Rome. And then you've got on here, on the other side, uh, these Gentiles who have grown up, and their whole religious practice was completely different than this. They would, uh, in, some, in some cases, in the Greco-Roman world, think that uh, okay, their morals were very different. We'll just leave it at that, Right? They had very different morals. They thought that sacrificing to these pagan gods and, and, and celebrating through these big festivals was how you worship God. 
how are these two groups going to be together in one church? Okay, that's the main thing that Paul is addressing here in Romans 14 and 15. So he's already mentioned that the, that the weak and the strong in faith should uh, welcome one another and that they should love one another and still exist in community, even though the weak in faith are wrong theologically. Okay? And now, this is a, I don't think we can get a full sense of how important and significant this was. This was a big theological discussion. And the weak in faith, they thought they had the Bible on their side. Okay, so this is a big discussion. This is a big, major transition in the life of the early church. This wasn't a small matter of opinions, okay? Okay, so Romans 15, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 13. It says, we who are strong. Okay, Paul includes himself in the strong. So notice that. His theology aligns with the strong, and he thinks they're right. In fact, he knows they're right, okay, based on his exegesis of the Old Testament. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, okay? So he says, and that word bear with, it doesn't just mean put up with these annoying people and, and hope that we don't have to, like, interact with one another, pretend we aren't there. No, bear with means, like, come to the aid of, tolerate, help, come to the aid of, all of that. Bear with the failings of the weak. He even says it, okay? Their faith isn't as strong as it should be. And that's a failure on their part. Okay, so if you're weak in faith, you're listening to this in one of these house churches, you're like, dude, ouch, right? Come on, man. So the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Okay, so now he's going to base this in, so now he's going to base his argument. Let, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Ian, go ahead and go to the next one. For Christ did not please himself. The reason the strong have this obligation is none other than Jesus himself. It is based in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, now he's going to the Old Testament, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This is from Psalm 69, I believe. For whoever was written, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instructions. Okay, don't miss this. Our. He says our instructions. He's writing to the Jews and the Gentiles. Formerly, the Jewish group, they thought that the Old Testament scriptures was theirs. This is for them. This is their scripture, their instruction, their teaching. Paul says, nope, it's for the Gentiles too. Even for those Pagans, who this isn't their story, they're included in this story, so now the Old Testament is for their instruction too. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means, the endurance, the encouragement of the scriptures, and how they give us hope later on. Okay, Ian, go ahead to the next one. Now, he's going to pause and pray. He pauses and prays twice in this section. May the God of endurance and encouragement, meaning the, the endurance and encouragement find their source in God. He is the source of those things. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Oh, and on encouragement. Remember, he said, encouragement is found in the scriptures. So because uh, God's word, 
The scripture is God's word, and that's where the encouragement comes. When we look at the Old Testament and we look at scripture, we should be encouraged by that. They're sourced in God. He's the ultimate foundation of them. So he turns to God and asks him to grant these things. May God grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So this harmony, this unity is in accord with the way of Christ, meaning it aligns with him and his teaching and his way. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see this theme play out a little bit more here that the un- that in, when they're worshiping God together in unity, they're glorifying him. Glorifying God is the theme of the whole book. It is the theme of the entire Christian life. It is our purpose. It is what we are called to do is to glorify God. So that's why Christians can, that's why Paul is challenging them so strongly to do this. Okay, we'll get to that later. I'm gonna, whatever, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Ian, go ahead. I don't have my notes, so I'm just kind of riffing. I'm getting all amped up, you can tell. All right. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. There's glory again, right? We're to welcome one another because of God's glory. We give God more glory when we worship him in unity. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That's to the Jews. Christ's ministry when he was on earth was primarily towards the Jews. To show God's truthfulness. So to confirm the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus fulfilled all of them, he was the promised Messiah, God's promises are true. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, primarily what he has in view is most likely the promise given to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all peoples. Okay, and then for generation after generation after generation, people of Israel are waiting for the Messiah to fulfill this promise of, of Abraham and his descendants being a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And guys like David, uh, guys like Daniel, guys even like Joseph, they all fall short until Jesus comes onto the, onto the pages of history. In order that, the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Okay, so now he's, he's going back to mercy. That should hyperlink back to 12.1, what I just mentioned earlier. And what Paul's going to do now is go through a couple of Old Testament texts and say, hey, guys, this has always been the plan. The, the Gentiles coming into the people of God has always been a part of the plan. Jews, we've been missing this for generations, <laughs> that this is what God wants. And that is why... We're going to work towards unity, is what Paul is saying to them. We're not going to give up. We're not going to split. We're not going to have different house churches. We're going to remain unified, and we're going to worship God together, because this has been a part of the plan from the beginning. And he wants the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, too. He said, as it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Ian, go ahead. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. One more. And again, Isaiah said, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Okay, uh, band, you guys can come on up and get set. He says, and now he stops and prays again. He says, May the God of hope. So again, hope is sourced in God. Where, where, where do we find this hope? In God himself. 
So he pauses and prays that God would give this and grant this to the churches. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. What a beautiful prayer. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That is such a beautiful prayer. That the God who gives hope, who, in whom is found hope, fill you with joy and peace in believing. Paul's prayer for them is that their experience in church, in this new community, would be one of joy and peace. Even though they're facing a lot of conflicts right now. So that, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. Go ahead to the next one, Ian. Our big idea is that God is more glorified when we are unified in him. I just wrote that like as I was writing the devotional. And after I wrote that, I was like, man, that sounds a lot like John Piper's line. It's pretty much the same thing. God is, more, uh, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him, is Piper's line. But I think both are true. I think what Paul is getting at here, he's been driving at this for the whole book. He's saying, if we want to glorify God, we should worship God together in unity in spite of our differences because when the Jews and the Gentiles, when people with these major cultural, biblical distinctions and differences come together in unity and still worship God and praise him, we are fulfilling our purpose and giving God a lot more glory. Because when we can do that, God looks awesome to the world. And that is our hope. And when we see it in the Old Testament, that should give us hope. And church, our experience of church should be one of joy and peace together in believing him. I'll come back and apply this later, but let's pray. Lord, God, we thank you for your word that is true. Pray for your Holy Spirit's guidance in convicting us. Lord, in guiding us towards unity. Because God, our heart's desire is to worship you and to bring you more glory, to make you look awesome. Because you are. So Lord, we repent of the times that we don't do this. We repent of the times when, Lord, we, we don't make you look as glorious as, you, as we should. So Lord, help us, help your church to honor you and to give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with us? Let's sing together. You guys can have a seat for a minute. All right, let's apply what we just read, what we just talked about and just sang about. Remember our big idea is that God is more glorified when we are unified in him and worshiping him together in unity. As we've said, and I hope as you've seen, as you read the New Testament, as we go through these books, and as we study this, and as we look at Romans 12 through 16, the easy road in Rome would have been for Paul to say, hey guys, let's make different house churches. Let's make two churches kosher. And then let's make three churches non-kosher. We have these preferences, let's split them up according to what we all want. Paul will have none of that. There is no hint of any of that in any of the books of the New Testament, especially Romans. 
Instead, his call is consistently that those who have the more freeing position to willingly, not under coercion, but willingly give up that freedom to benefit your brothers and sisters in Jesus. When we're talking about these matters of opinions and disputable matters. This is the hard road that Paul takes, but it's worth it because it gives God more glory. Because the purpose of the church, the purpose of us existing is not ease and comfort and luxury. It is to glorify God. And if taking this challenging road will give God more glory, Paul's like, let's do it. Let's go. We could easily have a Jewish church and a Gentile church and we'd be great. It'd be smooth sailing. No hint of it in any of his letters because this gives God more glory. Amidst the tensions, amidst the troubles. And in doing so, the church has been the most diverse religious movement in the history of the world. It didn't come easy though. This is a few years after Jesus, 30 years or so after Jesus. And they're already having serious conflicts and tensions. And what this text illustrates as clearly as any is that this unity, it doesn't come at the expense of our differences. Unity comes in the midst of them. It doesn't mean conformity on every opinion, on every idea that we have. Instead, it means in the midst of our differences to love one another and to exist together in unity because this gives God more glory. Ian, go ahead and do the next one. For this to happen, a couple things need to take place. Number one, the strong in this sense, those who have a more freeing position have an obligation to use their liberties, their Christian liberties or Christian freedoms for the benefit of others and not just to serve themselves. Remember, because Jesus did that. In the context in 1421, the previous chapter, Paul said it is better not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So he's saying to the strong, if you're going to cause somebody to stumble and fall and to question their faith, you give up your right. You're right. You're actually right theologically about this, but give it up for them because you love them, because you want to be in unity with them and you want to have a relationship with them. First, let's talk big macro scale. Church groups within the evangelical church. This has been in my heart for a long time and I hope it has yours as well. The disunity between the black evangelical church and the white evangelical church. There is some fake unity out there that says, like, you do your thing, we'll do our thing. We'll only kind of talk when we have to. We're at peace, so everything is good, right? Whereas sometimes, like what Paul is saying here, we need to mix it up a little bit, create some tension in order to come out more unified and give God more glory in the process. We hide behind preferences. We hide behind these reasons that we don't worship together more often. 
And I understand, okay, this, this goes both ways, right? There, there's a lot of tension here. There's a lot of difficulties here that we have to overcome. Martin Luther King Jr. said that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. I looked up some stats on this and I forgot to write them down so I don't have them exactly. But it's largely still true, but it's getting better. The church is working towards this, but in many places and locations, it is largely still true. And I get it, there's lots of reasons for that. Location, worship music styles and preferences and non-essential theology like kingdom theologies and financial differences and There's a lot there. I get it. And I don't have all the answers for this. I don't know. And we want to keep this within, I think, the church is Paul's scope here for what he's talking about. Okay, let me me be clear, too. Our our sensitivities to this are very high. I'm not calling any of you racist, okay? (laughs) Whenever I talk about this, someone's like, whoa, whoa, don't call me racist, man. I'm not, okay? I'm not. Thinking of this in the church, one example that I thought of was uh, I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and Trinity University. When I was in college there, um, it's, it's an evangelical free college and it's in Deerfield, Illinois, which is one of the wealthiest suburbs in the country, Chicago suburbs. It's, so, it's such a wealthy area that a lot of the professors there, they don't get paid enough to actually live there. They have to drive like 45 minutes an hour away because it, it, you can't afford to live there on the salary that they have. But when I was there, Trinity had a lot of these programs to bring kids from the inner city of Chicago, most of whom were African-American, to come and to study there at this prestigious Christian university. And again, we're focusing on this through the lens of the church. I get it. There's other socioeconomic things in play here when we talk about uh, universities, but we're thinking about this through the lens of the church. And I get it, okay? There's a lot of problems with these initiatives that I'm aware of, that I lived through being there. Um, So if you have an email about how, why these programs don't work and why they're bad, you can save it. I, I get it, okay? They have issues, but we should applaud the effort instead of resisting efforts like that. Because what happened there was you have a primarily white administrators of the evangelical school, which is like the poster boy school of the EV Free Church. They decided that we need more black voices here. So we're going to do something about it. They hired a number of people to be on the administration there. They brought in more diverse students. They hired professors who had even differences in non-essential theology. And that created a lot of tensions. They used their position here of more freedom because educational differences is a major difference. If the black evangelical church has trouble training pastors, that's a problem. So they worked hard to create a multi-ethnic community. And (laughs) at Trinity, we had a killer gospel choir, all right? It was pretty good. And my roommate and my best friend, (laughs) 
Luke Cornemont, if you know him, he attends church here. He, <laughs> he joined the gospel choir. Most shocking thing I've ever seen Luke do in my life, by far. <laughs> by far. <laughs> and for him, it had to feel so awkward. I know it felt awkward for him. But he did it, and he loved it, and he had nothing but positive things to say about the experience. And when the gospel choir would perform at chapel, it was weird for me. I don't know how to move, okay? I don't dance. I, I don't sing like that. I can't, okay? Just physically, my body doesn't do that stuff, right? <laughs> but it was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome to see the diversity in worship, expressions, and experience. Now, as I said, I don't have all the answers for this. In fact, I don't have many at all. But what I do know, and again, I'm speaking to a largely white audience, okay? So remember that. What I do know is we have to want that. Heaven's going to be really awkward for you if you don't. It's uncomfortable. It might be a little weird to you, but we have to want that. And when we come from a theological position of strength within the church where we have more freedom to whatever, we have to be the ones to reach out. And we have to be the ones to want that, to make something happen. Okay, it's personal application. That's big church stuff. Again, if you have the more freeing position on some of these disputable matters and opinions, remember, that's our scope. That's our focus. We're not talking essential doctrinal issues. We're not talking clear ethical teachings in Scripture. We're talking disputable matters and opinions here. We should be willing to give up our Christian liberties for others whose conscience convicts them. So the examples that I used last week, something like alcohol. If you have Christian freedom, if you don't feel convicted about having a glass of wine, okay, the prohibition in scripture is don't get drunk. If you don't have any conviction about having a glass of wine with dinner, that is a stronger position to come from here. But if you're having dinner and being hospitable with somebody who's coming over and they, their conscience convicts them, don't offer them a glass of wine, okay? Just keep it off the table for this, for this evening. Don't bring it up. If you don't know, it's best to not bring it up, right? Even though you have that freedom, should you act in it? Out of love for your brother or sister in Christ, we should be willing to lay down little freedoms like that for them. Pretty directly applicable here. I have a friend who's considering Messianic Judaism, and he's kind of exploring the theology of that a little bit and maintaining his faith in Jesus, but thinking maybe he should follow some of the more kosher uh, dietary laws. And if that's where he lands, I disagree with him 100%. But if that's where he lands and I go over to his house or I invite them over, I'm not going to make bacon when they come over, okay? I'm not going to have that frying in the pan when they walk in. That's offensive. That's rude, right? I'll eat kosher when I'm with them. That's fine. Big idea, guys. This has a lot of applications, and I'm not going to go into all of them. But if we get this big idea, if you have the more freeing, the more, uh, the more, uh, uh, more liberties in your Christian freedom position, and it's not something that directly contradicts Scripture, 
You should be willing to lay that aside out of love for your fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus. There's a lot of applications right now that I'm not going into and I'm leaving on the table and I'm counting on you to go home and think about this and talk about this. Okay, next. God is faithful. He has ordained the unity of the church so it will come to pass. Remember, Paul, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and yet he's a former Pharisee himself. He steps back and he looks at the 30,000-foot view of the church, and he says, how on earth is this going to work? We have people who have some serious disagreements and differences over theology, culture, politics, everything. There's no way this is going to work. It's like we've got self-righteous, legalistic Jews on this one side who've been told their whole life that they need to do all of these things in order to worship God and be righteous before him. And then we've got Gentiles on the other side who, who thought uh, worshiping God was a lot of different things, right? Sacrifices, idol practice, temple worship, stuff like that. That's what they were supposed to do to worship God. And some who just had no religion whatsoever had no moral <laughs> thought of their life, okay? How are we going to make this work together in this new Jesus community? And guys, I don't think it's changed that much. Maybe the categories are different of not so much the dietary laws and stuff like that. The categories are a little different. But I know many of your stories and this is my favorite part of being a pastor, sitting with you and listening to your stories. We have folks who come from fundamentalist backgrounds. We have folks who come from Catholic backgrounds who are much more uh, uh, follow the rules. This is what you do to worship God. Check these boxes, right? And then we have folks from charismatic backgrounds. We have folks from evangelical backgrounds. We have people with no church background. We have those who rebelled and walked away from their faith and lived a lifestyle that was not in line with what they had been raised with. But later they came back to Christ and he saved them. We have a lot of differences among us. And sometimes I look out and I say, how on earth are we gonna make this work? And Paul stopping to pray twice in the middle of this, I think is so profound that we miss. We often miss when we're thinking of it solely from our perspective of how to do these things. Remember, he says that God is our source of hope, endurance, and encouragement. That if God said he's going to do this, he's going to do it. And when he looks back at the story of the Old Testament and how many generations they waited for Jesus to show up, and then finally he did show up, and God fulfilled his promise, he says, God is faithful. He will do what he says he will do. And so he stops and he prays that the God of endurance and encouragement would grant you to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. 
that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How beautiful is that? That when we worship together in unity, we give God more glory. And then he says in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We gotta turn back to God and find those things in God. You can go to the next one here. Okay, when we welcome one another, we're acting like Jesus. We need to think about how Jesus welcomed us and how he has shown us mercy. You don't deserve to be counted among his people. You don't. It is solely an act of God's mercy that you are a part of God's people. Even if you can trace your bloodline back to Jewish ancestry, if you do the ancestry thing and you find that you're part Jewish, whatever, you still don't deserve to be a part of the people of God. God just chose you. Think of the mercy that God has given you. He even tells the Jewish people, say, I didn't choose you because you're better than anybody else. I kind of just chose you. I think so much of our pride and our desire to cling to our own advantages for our benefit is because we have a shallow theology of God's mercy. When you read through the book of Romans, I think that's the point, is your salvation is God's mercy, is due to his mercy and love for you, that's it. It's not because you were so great, he saved you. He says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. My theology, and you don't have to hold to this theology to be a Christian, but I think when we read through the book of Romans, I think that's Paul's theology too, God chose you and God saved you by his grace, period, end of story. And when you think of the mercy and the love of God involved in that decision and how God chose you and saved you, how can you not give all of your life to him as a living sacrifice? How can we not welcome one another in the midst of our differences when God just welcomed you in spite of your sin? We're gonna go into communion now. And that's one of the main themes of communion is us celebrating the Lord's table together in unity. That Jesus, because of what he has done, has united us. So I want you to spend a few moments on this and reflect on, while you're holding the communion elements, reflect on God's mercy in saving you. Reflect on what Jesus forgave you of. Reflect of how he chose you, how he loves you, and how he has saved you and given you grace. And how you should give that same grace to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It needs to start here. It needs to start with our understanding of God's mercy towards us, or else we will never give it towards others. So, let's move into the middle. Go ahead and grab the communion elements. I'll pray, uh, and we'll partake together in a few moments here. Pray with me first for the bread. Jesus, we thank you for humbling yourself. Lord, for giving up some of your privileges 
of divinity in coming and being made man and humbling yourself to dying, Lord, and dying even on a cross. Lord, may your example of not pleasing yourself but coming to benefit others, to giving up your freedoms, your liberties to benefit others in community, Lord. Would your example motivate us to action? To, Lord, love one another as you have loved us. And, Lord, we thank you that your body has taken our sin. And, Lord, that you have taken the wrath of God and dying on the cross for us. Lord, it is your mercy that leaves us in awe. It is your mercy that inspires us and moves us to show mercy and love towards one another. Let's partake of the bread together. Would you pray with me for the cup? Lord, God, as we look back at the story of Scripture, of all history, Lord, the hopelessness of generations waiting for the Messiah to come, to bring in the Gentiles into the people of God, for all the nations to worship you, unified with one voice. And then, Jesus, for you to come and for your blood to establish this new covenant that all the nations of the earth are welcome in your people. Lord, there are many things that drive us apart and we have differences on, but Jesus, your sacrifice on the cross, the unity that you have achieved in dying for us, and this new identity that we have in you, that must be at the foundation of who we are. So Lord, we reunite, unite around that, around your sacrifice, around your love, and around your new covenant that you have made with us. And Lord, we remember that as we partake together. Let's partake of the cup. You guys pray with me as we close. And I just want to pray, ending with the words of Paul in Romans 15, 13. Let's bow our heads. Lord, you are the God of hope. Would you, Lord, fill us with joy and peace in believing? May our experience in community be one of joy, be one of peace with one another and peace with you, O oh God. And Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may we abound in hope. Even when it seems completely unattainable, Lord, we rest in your promises, we rest in your character, and we know that you are faithful and you are good. So Lord, give us hope today. Pray for peace. And we pray for joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, guys. If you need prayer, I'd be happy to pray with you. Out there, grab somebody next to you and pray with them. Have a great week.